Welcome to True Crime Island. I'm your host, Cambo, and tonight I'm going to tell you about a seriously scary dude that preyed on unsuspecting backpackers during the mid-70s. So grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island. It's December 18, 1975. Pattaya, a beach resort town on the eastern seaboard of Thailand. A fisherman discovers a bikini-clad body of a western tourist floating in the water. He drags it to shore and police are called. There's no identification and no signs of foul play. Is this just an accident or is there something more sinister involved? This is the story of Charles Sabrage, a.k.a. The Bikini Killer. So that was October 18. Police would use photos and canvas all the local hotels trying to get a positive ID on the female Western tourists they had on a slab in the morgue. They had no luck with that and hoped that someone would file a missing persons report in order to identify her. So we go to October 27. A rice farmer, he sees smoke rising in the distance on the road to Siam Country Club, Pattaya. To his shock, he discovers the still smouldering body of a man. When police attend the site, they find no identification on the body and as most of the facial features had burned away, they originally took it to be a local that may have committed suicide. December 9. The body of a young western girl is found drowned in a tidal creek near Pattaya. Again, there's no identification, but this time the coroner finds she was strangled and deliberately drowned. Even though she would be found fully dressed, the papers would dub the unknown killer the Bikini Killer in reference to the dead girl found earlier that month. December 18, the burnt bodies of a western man and woman are discovered by school children still smouldering in a paddock near Pattaya. Originally misidentified as an Australian couple, their photo would end up on the front page of the Bangkok Post, but more on that later. So Pattaya in the early 70s, it's a beach resort town popular with backpackers, on the hippie trail that starts in Thailand and goes through India and up to Nepal. With plenty of drugs and alcohol, people will inevitably find themselves in situations where they may end up dead, either by their own fault or maybe by the hand of others. So now now the Royal Thai Police have the deaths of five Westerners in a two-month period in the Pattaya area. Although unusual to have so many deaths in such a short period, what links these events won't become apparent for quite a while yet. Meanwhile, just a few days later on December 22 in Nepal, the still-burning bodies of two Western tourists are discovered by a farmer boy in a paddock near the foothills of the Himalayas. So before we go into what's going on with all these deaths, let's wind the clock back a little bit and get some background on this Charles Sabrage character. Well, he was born April 6, 1944 in Vietnam to a Vietnamese mother and an Indian businessman. 
His father would take off and marry an Indian girl, and his mum later hooked up with a French lieutenant stationed in the area. The next few years would see him spending his time between Vietnam and France. In his teen years, he'd become a little bit troublesome, and in 1963, at the age of 19, he would be jailed for burglary. In jail, he'd meet a wealthy young man that was a volunteer prison visitor named Felix de Esconge. And I apologise if I get any of these names wrong, if I pronounce them wrong. In 1968, after serving five years and getting parole, Charles would be introduced to the High Society of Paris by Felix, where he would meet his first wife, Chantal Compagnon. They were married late 1969, and after travelling through many countries committing robbery and fraud, they ended up in Bombay, where his daughter was born November 15, 1970. So after a failed robbery in 1973 at the Ashok Hotel in India, Charles was arrested, but he faked illness and was sent to hospital. Chantal helped him escape by drugging the guards and they fled the country. After a period of travelling through Athens and Istanbul, they ended up in Kabul, where he was arrested again and jailed. Chantal helped him escape to Iran, but she now had enough of the life of crime and took their daughter back to Paris. For the next couple of years, he'd go on drugging and robbing tourists, often using the passports he stole to assume the identity of his victims, and it's this skill that would hamper law enforcement in being able to bring him to justice. So we're back to 1975. Charles is in Bangkok and frequently travels between here, Hong Kong, Malaysia and Singapore, where after stealing the passport of a French geologist in Hong Kong named Denis Gautier, Charles would create the alias Alain Gautier, gemstone dealer. Charles then contacted a French-Canadian girl he'd charmed previously by the name of Marie-André Leclerc. She was invited by him to join him in Bangkok, and so by August 1975, she flew to meet him. Marie had medical training, and this would become a great asset in the near future, and she would become one of his most devoted followers. He gave her the alias Monique, and would introduce her either as his wife or secretary. She fell for his suave charm and the exciting life of crime, as it was much more exciting than her old life in Quebec. At this time, Charles also met an Indian guy named A.J. Chowdhury, who would ultimately become his second-in-command. Without going into too much detail, they set up a room at Cannot House near the tourist area of Patpong, Bangkok, room 504. This would become a popular place with people always in and out, looking to do business with Alain Gautier, gemstone dealer. So Charles started to create a family of followers. He would recruit them by drugging them with the help of Marie, rob them, and then next day come to their assistance. This would make them dependent on him as they had no money, no passports. These were some of the lucky ones. 
So we have Charles alias Alain Gautier, Marie alias Monique, and AJ, who didn't get an alias. They are systematically drugging and robbing tourists of their money and their passports. So what about the dead Westerners I told you about earlier? Well, each one of them had recently been in contact with Charles, Marie and AJ. Why did they end up dead? So before we get into the police investigation, I'll go into more detail about each murder. That girl found floating in the sea on October 18, Teresa Knowlton, 22, from the USA. She was on her way to Nepal to study at the Buddhist monastery. She heard from other travellers about this gemstone dealer in Bangkok called Elaine. She went to Cannot House and partied on with all the others there that day. Charles invited her for a weekend at Pattaya. What actually happened was she was drugged. AJ and Charles then drove her to Pattaya, where she was strangled and dressed in a floral bikini, then let float out into the sea to be later found by the fishermen. On October 27, the guy they found burning near Siam Country Club, that was Vitali Hakim. He was a Turk from Ibiza who was in Thailand organising a shipment of heroin. He met Charles and again he was drugged and with AJ's help they tortured and strangled him, then doused him in petrol and set him alight. While torturing him, he gave up the name of his drug courier girlfriend, Stephanie Parry, who was arriving in Bangkok to make a pickup. Well, that was the girl that ended up being found strangled and drowned in the tidal pool near Pattaya in December 9. Charles contacted her and explained that Vitali was visiting a gemstone mine and that he would take her to see him. She found she had no real option but to go with him and after being drugged, she was strangled and drowned. The couple that was mistakenly identified in the Bangkok Post as an Aussie couple, well, they were actually a Dutch couple, Henk Bintanja, 25, and Cornelia Hempke, 24. Both had been backpacking for about a year and had met Elaine in Hong Kong previously. Now, it was this Dutch couple's murder that would ultimately cause the collapse of Charles's operation in Bangkok. They were pro- prolific writers and would regularly correspond with their friends and family back home. After not hearing from them for about six weeks, the family contacted officials and they sent out a request to the Dutch embassy in Bangkok to see if they'd seen or heard of them. So in the short period of about two months, we have several dead Westerners. The police and press haven't quite linked them together as yet, but they've dubbed the perpetrator as the Bikini Killer. Now a few days later, Charles and Marie left Bangkok and they travelled to Nepal on the Dutch couple's passports. Once in Nepal, they befriend Canadian Laurent Carrier, 26, and Connie Bronzich, a 29-year-old US citizen. They were found burning in the foothills of the Himalayas and discovered by a farmer boy. Charles and Marie ended up being detained by police and questioned 
but they were released for lack of evidence. By the time police gathered the evidence required, Charles and Marie had fled the country, leaving behind a hotel room full of pharmaceuticals, passports and equipment for forging or alterating passports. Now, while Charles and Marie were away in Nepal, some of the residents at Cannot House were getting a bit suspicious about the goings-on in Room 504. Lots of people that came in contact with Alain Gautier would end up sick or would just disappear. It was when the photo of the Dutch couple's burnt bodies appeared in the Bangkok Post. It was Dominic Arenolo, one of the friends of Charles a.k.a. Alain, recognised the dress the girl was wearing in the photo was that of the Dutch girl Cornelia, who with a boyfriend had disappeared. They went up to room 504 and they found the Turk guy's necklace. They also found the suitcases of the Dutch couple and as they had a key to the safe, they opened it and they found a Foodland bag with about 20 passports inside. This is when they realised that Elaine and Monique were murderers. But the problem was they really didn't have enough evidence to go to police. So now we come to February 1976. It's here where a Dutch embassy official, Herman Kippenberg, would be asked to see if he had any information about Henk Bintanja and Cornelia Hempke. He'd been supplied the last letter that they had sent home and in it they described how they'd met this French gemstone dealer and were invited to his place in Bangkok. He then went to the Australian Embassy to see if the two burnt bodies that were on the front page of the Bangkok Post had been positively identified by the Australians. They told him that they weren't Aussies, and so Herman organised for the dental records of uh, Henk and Cornelia to be sent to him And once he got these, he was able to get the Thai authorities to positively identify the two as the Dutch couple. The more he investigated, the more things started falling into place. He ended up getting a tip-off from the Australian embassy about an Aussie couple that had been drugged and robbed by a French gem dealer earlier in September 1975. Here he got the name Alain Gautier. Eventually... He found out about a French woman that may know of him. She was Nadine Guirez, who was living in Cannot House and was one of the people that had become suspicious of Elaine. Kippenberg met her and she was able to tell him how she and fellow residents had reason to believe Alain Gordier was in fact a murderer and that they were sure the Dutch couple had been murdered by him. Kippenberg was then able to link the other mysterious deaths that had occurred all together. He also read press reports at this time coming out of Nepal of two Westerners that were found in similar circumstances to the murders in Thailand, with the bodies burnt after they'd been murdered. He eventually got enough evidence to go to police and they watched for Alain Gautier to arrive back at his apartment and then they raided it. They found two men and a woman. Marie shows them her passport, and that's valid. AJ also shows them a valid passport. When asking Elaine for his ID, he denies he's Alan Gautier at all, 
and offers the passport of Steve Watson, a US citizen. They're taken downtown and Charles is able to convince them that he is Steve Watson and they are released to the horror of Kippenberg. Kippenberg later gains access to room 504 Cannot House and finds plenty of evidence that the Thai police had missed, including syringes, drugs such as Mogadon and Lagactal, and other property belonging to some of the missing and murdered travellers. With this evidence, the police now link all the murders together as the work of one man and now have enough to press charges. Problem is, Alan Gautier is nowhere to be seen. As police investigate more, they end up contacting Marie's mum in Canada and she gives them the number of a woman in France with the last name Sabrage. They put the name Sabrage into the database at Interpol and they come up with the name Charles Sabrage. He's wanted in India after escaping custody for the robbery on the Ashok Hotel. He's put on the most wanted list and this is sent to all Interpol agencies around the world. This information would make its way back to Thai police, so now they had the real identity of the Bikini Killer. Now, it's Charles' ability to freely move between countries on altered and stolen passports that would really hamper the investigations by police. However, he's now on the most wanted list of Interpol, and his photo would be sent worldwide. Charles and Marie eventually ended up in India and soon after, a tourist, Jean-Luc Solomon, is found murdered in his hotel, passports and valuables stolen. A few days later, police are called to an incident where 40 French tourists have been drugged by their tour guide. They rush to the hotel where they detain the tour guide. Eventually, they find out it's Charles Sabrage. He and Marie are arrested and eventually charged with the murder of Solomon. AJ's not with him and he's never seen again. It's thought that he too was murdered by Charles. Charles and Marie are found guilty of murder and Charles is sentenced to 12 years and Marie to 8. Marie would later be paroled and would return home to Canada where she would protest her innocence until she died of ovarian cancer in 1984. In prison, Charles was a bit of a celebrity, and he'd gain favours from the guards and live a much better life than any of the other prisoners. So the Thai authorities contact the Indian government about extraditing Charles to face murder charges in Thailand. Problem was that the Indians won't extradite anyone if they were doing time in one of their prisons until their sentence is up. Charles knew this, and as the Thais have a 20-year statute of limitations on murder, he knew he would be sent to Thailand where he would face the death penalty after his 12-year sentence was up. So in March 1986, after serving 10 years in prison, he threw a big party for his guards and fellow inmates, drugged them with sleeping pills and walked out of the jail. He was on the run for about a week or so until he was seen in the street and recaptured. His sentence was extended a further 10 years, which would mean that the Thai murder charges would expire by the time he was released. 
So this jailbreak was staged by Charles just to get his sentence extended. This shows the thinking of this guy. To be able to think this way, you really need to be a bit of a psychopath. So on February 17, 1997, he was released with no warrants against him, but he was stateless. France didn't want him, as they said he wasn't a citizen. However, at the same time, a few French sailors were locked up for being bad boys, and so the Indians struck a deal that they would release the sailors only if they also took Charles. So for the next few years, he spends it in Paris. He's charging up to 5000 US for interviews and even charging people to dine with him and have photos taken with him. It's even reported that he struck a deal for millions of dollars for film rights of his life story. So you think he'd settle down and be happy that he had gotten away with most of the terrible things he'd allegedly done. No, no, no. In 2003, age 59, he ended up in Nepal doing a documentary for a French production company. He was spotted in the street and arrested. Now remember the farmer boy that found the burning bodies at the foot of the Himalayas? Well now he's a cop and he wants to bust Charles's ass. He really pressed hard even though a lot of the evidence was lost or was only a copy of the original. Eventually Charles would be charged and on 20th August 19, uh, 2004 he was convicted of the murders of Bronzich and Carrier in, that occurred in 1975. He protested his innocence, saying he wasn't even in the country at the time. Remember how he'd entered on false passports? But the appeals failed and his life sentence was upheld. Now in 2016, he's still in Kathmandu Central Jail. So Charles is now 72, and he spent half of his life in jail. He was able to use his charm to seduce women and recruit followers. This soft-spoken, suave gentleman was able to lure people in and then drug, rob and sometimes murder them. In interviews over the years, he's admitted to being involved in the murders that occurred in Thailand and India, although he said he would deny every, everything if he was ever charged and brought to court. Investigators over the years have tracked his movements throughout the 70s and have been able to match up over 40 other suspicious deaths that have occurred in similar circumstances when Charles was known to be in the area at that time. He's also admitted to drugging and robbing hundreds of people. He states in his defence that he only killed bad people such as drug dealers, but there was never any evidence to suggest this in most cases. In an interview in 2003, he said he did have regrets in his life. Somehow I think he regrets being caught more than of the terrible acts he committed. So that's the story of Charles Sabrage. There's so much more I could have told you about, but I've just given you the best outline I could without too much confusing detail. My main source of information was a book, The Life and Crimes of Charles Sabrage, by Richard Neville and Julia Clark. Sadly, while I was researching Charles's life, Richard Neville passed away. The book's a great read and goes into so much more detail than I could hear. So that about wraps up the first episode of True Crime Island. It's been a challenge getting this first episode out, and I hope you enjoyed it and will listen to the next episode that should be out in about a week. 
The website's truecrimeisland.com, where there's links to Facebook and Twitter, and soon we'll have full iTunes listing. I'd like to thank Michelle at wanderingsearching.com for the lovely island image, and DJ Andrew for the music bits. So this is Cambo signing off from the True Crime Island. Music